We want to thank you for following the Looking Forward Our Way podcast. Do you know we also have a newsletter? Our goal with the newsletter is to never waste your time or fill your inbox with email landfill. Each newsletter is quick and easy to read, and it keeps you updated on what we're working on as well as what's coming up in the next episode of the podcast. You'll see some newsletter items come and go, but we will always be respectful of your time and inbox clutter. And we always encourage recycling. So please send the newsletter along to a friend or family member. Sign up by clicking on the link in the show notes or go to our website, lookingforwardourway.com. Thanks again for following and listening to Looking Forward Our Way. The other thing that's important to distinguish how public health might be different than other healthcare providers is public health really works on prevention. By the time you go in to see a doctor or a nurse practitioner for an issue, it's a reactionary mode already. You're already sick or something has happened. But public health has a large part of its charge in addressing the policies and government systems and structures to prevent these things from ever happening. Mm -hmm. So the fluoridated water that I brought up earlier, seatbelts, car seats for children and infants, Those are all powerful things that public health professionals over generations have pushed for laws and things to change because we know it's healthiest of all if it's actually prevented, if you never encounter that illness. We are looking forward our way. We're in Studio C in the 511 Studios in the Brewery District in downtown Columbus. This is Brett. Carol joining me for another podcast episode. How are you? I'm good. You know what, Brett? I've had my two vaccines, and I am two weeks out, so I am safe. You're cooking. Right? You're cooking. I said I, I see the uh, light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not a train. So we're, we're good to go, and that's why we are talking about lights and enlightenment today. We have a very special guest. Rebecca Nelson is the Community Engagement Strategic Advisor for Columbus Public Health. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Carol. It's nice to see you again and to meet you, Brett. Yeah, yes. nice to meet you yes. too. Exactly. I said this is like old home week. I'm bringing all my friends in for podcasts, and Rebecca <laughs> and I are former OSU colleagues. So thank you again for yeah, – well, I know your time is probably crazy in the middle of all this COVID stuff. So. Yeah. Well, you know, we weren't aware of all that is accomplished by Columbus Public Health. Uh, Carol and I kind of discussed some options in regards to, okay, how can we – after – not after COVID, but really when it st- we start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, let's let's talk a little bit about this rather than the middle of it. Um, and we learned this department didn't just pop up out of thin air when the pandemic hit. Can you give us a little background of public health, the historic role it's played, and, and the mission vision it encompasses today, too? Thank you. Absolutely. I'm very proud of the work that Columbus Public Health does every day. And if I was to say in a soundbite what we do, we identify and address public health threats, we enforce laws that protect health, and we provide services to prevent and control disease. And the Columbus Public Health Department has a long history in this city. Uh, The first uh, record of its creation was in 1833. It was during a cholera epidemic, Mm -hmm. and five citizens were asked by the mayor, the then mayor, to create sort of a workforce group to address these issues. So what I love about that story is it shows, I don't remember the exact Margaret Mead quote, but all it takes is one or a couple concerned citizens Mm -hmm. to make a difference, right? So that's definitely a part of the history of this city. 
and then they became somewhat formalized in 1835, a couple of years later. But、uh, the role, the role, and the work of Columbus Public Health has definitely changed over the years.、Um, our overall mission is to protect the health and improve lives in our community. And that's a big scope. And originally,、uh, it was about things like、uh, cholera, smallpox, typhoid, polio.、Mm-hmm. Right? Those things were early on, but、uh, it has continued to evolve. We know obesity and chronic disease is a number one killer. Right? So public health's role has continued to evolve with the times. But one thing for sure is natural and man-made disasters are always going to be. On our radar, and、um, our mission stays the same as it was over 180 years ago to help the people of Columbus and Central Ohio lead healthier and safer lives.、Uh, today, or in the last couple generations, even、um, some of the accomplishments have included fluoridating drinking water. We don't even think about that. How、mm-hmm. that's been such、yeah. a boon for dental health, which、right. we know is connected to so much of our body's health. Uh, creating safer food systems,、um, improving the health of mothers and babies. As most of us know by now, the city of Columbus is on a negative radar with the infant mortality rate in our city. Reducing tobacco use and reducing deaths from heart disease and stroke, and last but certainly not least, right now, vaccinating children and adults.、Mm-hmm. So let me pause there. You know that、uh, when you think about. How often and how easy now we get、um, notice from Kroger saying you bought this particular item and it's got a recall, so bring it back. Yeah. And who would have thought that a hundred years ago? Yeah. That that these kinds of issues would become so important. Yeah. In our in the food safety network and and in the diseases、mm-hmm. that we are finding in our world. Yes, absolutely. So Rebecca, you and I,、um, we were colleagues at Ohio State, so we're sort of lifelong learners, and education is in our bloodstreams.、Um, tell us a little bit more about your background and、um, your ta- your work at public health, sort of how you got there, and、um, the skills that you built at Ohio State and and moved to public health. Well, thank you, Carol. I was at Ohio State for twenty two years in a variety of roles. But all of the roles include in some sort of diversity inclusion role or student advocacy role, and I think that that、um, that belief system that I have in working for the people is what's transitioned、uh, from my work at OSU to now the City of Columbus in a government role. But if you recall what I said earlier about the mission is to protect health and improve lives in our community, that was the same.、Um, Feelings that I had as a higher education professional,、mm-hmm. I wanted to protect the student body, improve their lives, help them gain access. So the work that I've done at Columbus Public Health has been around access issues, health equity issues, and working with the common people, getting them involved and engaged in the work that we do too. I was recruited to Columbus Public Health by Dr. Teresa Long, who was、mm. the previous health commissioner,、yeah. and as you might know, she is now back at OSU working with、yes. the College of Public Health. So life is circular,、mm-hmm. right? But she recruited me because she was looking for somebody outside the box. I did not have、mm-hmm. a degree in public health, but I had had a long history 
working with different diverse populations around access and equity issues. And so that is why she tapped me. Fabulous. She did a great job as our health commissioner, too. Yes, yes. So uh, I started as the administrator for what was then called Neighborhood, uh, the Department of Neighborhood Health. Uh, And since then, you know, all systems go through reorganizations. And since then, a lot of those programs are now uh, in a a new center called the Center for Public Health Innovation. And one of the key charges to that center is to address issues where racism raises its head as an issue of public health, right? Uh, And then the Office of the, the, the Programs of Health Equity, Minority Health, Chronic Disease Prevention are all in that new center. And when that new structure was created, Dr. Roberts, who is our current health commissioner, asked me if I would come and work with her as her strategic engagement advisor, working with the communities. So that's what I'm doing today, working with public health in that capacity. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, We had um, uh, Franklin County Auditor Mike Stenziano on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. And I think that the general population has no clue <laughs> how much work is being done in our governmental entities. And I hope that this kind of information and in our podcasts are helping people to educate themselves about where their tax dollars are going, what is good coming out of government, but also to realize all the resources that are available. If there's an issue, there are people you can talk to. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the most important things that that we can get out today to our listeners. The other thing that's important to distinguish how public health might be different than other health care providers is public health really works on prevention. By the time you go in to see a doctor or a nurse practitioner for an issue, it's a reactionary mode already. You're already sick or something has happened. But public health has a large part of its charge in addressing the policies and government systems and structures to prevent these things from ever happening. Mm -hmm. So the fluoridated water that I brought up earlier, seat belts, car seats for children and infants, those are all powerful things that public health professionals over generations have pushed for laws and things to change because we know it's healthiest of all if it's actually prevented, if you never encounter that right. illness, right? Mm-hmm. So. Right, right. Very yeah. good. Well, can you go over some of those programs? I mean, we, we touched upon it, you know, the safe drinking water, the food safety, uh, even to safe workplaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you do more than just the, the the testing and tracing and vaccines for COVID-19, which has been yes. the highlight, of course. <laughs> yes. And that's put you in the spotlight. And it's very important, of course. But uh, I think we wanted to delve a little bit deeper in regards to what public health does do and, and talk about some of those programs. Yes, So as I mentioned earlier, improving the health of mothers and babies has been a big part of our work as well. And uh, like like many things, unfortunately, the community has known for years that this was a serious issue. But it wasn't until infant mortality rates started really getting addressed and elevated through media, et cetera. And so the first effort started at uh, Columbus Public Health for the city, but they have now gone to be their own department called Celebrate One. Uh, here in the city, and that's a cabinet-level position really? on the mayor's that's cabinet. That's incredible. Okay. So uh, that, uh, just raising that as another issue, the things that we don't always think about are uh, restaurants, you know, licensing, uh, inspections, mm-hmm. uh, swimming pools, right? 
I worked recently with our um, our team who works on on uh, examining deaths as they've occurred, and they discovered that there had been an unfortunate number of child deaths by drowning. Right, so there's that 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 caused us to do a whole new round of outreach. Those communities in which those happened, um, but I think people don't think about the vast scope of public health for sure. We do have clinical operations, which are some people consider the backbone of the work that we do. We have a profoundly effective women's health clinic. We have amazing sexual health services, uh, and we have a dental clinic as well. But um, I think it's the the broader things that have grown over time that people don't think about the work that we do. One newer program that I will elevate is the Care Coalition work. Our social work team created uh, sort of an early uh, initiative of this after there were multiple homicide deaths out in the west side of Columbus. It was all on the same street, and it was two houses across from each other, uh, and people were shot to death. And the whole community was traumatized. So that is when trauma came on our radar and how we could best respond uh, to communities that are uh, struggling and trying to find their way through, much less the families who were directly involved. And that program got lifted up by city council and the mayor's office a couple years ago and is now called the Care Coalition. It has extended funding. And on what I'm really pleased to see is the acknowledgement of the worth and the role and the importance of social workers in public health work. Mm -hmm. It's not just inspectors. It's not just nurses or doctors. It's social workers as well. So now when there's a homicide in the city – this team is the first one of the first teams to reach out to offer help, support, resources to the affected individuals. And then they do many more programs with schools around resilience building. Um, so that is one of the programs that I want to uplift that not enough people know is part of mm-hmm. public health outreach because, of course, violence is a uh, is is a detractor to you living a holistic, healthy life, too. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it, what's interesting, too, is that some of these issues are things that we don't even realize are are issues. And until it became so well-known in the newspaper, no one had any idea that the moms and babies mm-hmm. in Columbus were dying yeah. and, and, and that there were things going on in our community that we could fix in this area. Um, so I think that public health is also – uh, keeping not just the general public, but the the um, um, decision makers, policymakers aware of issues. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Policy is a big part of the work that Columbus Public Health does these mm-hmm. days, for sure. Okay. Yeah. As, as I'm, um, we were just talking about diseases, and and um, I had mentioned that uh, a young girl had polio in my neighborhood when I was growing up. And she suffered with that for for many, many years. But today we have technology. We have uh, vast educational programs that did not exist when polio was out there. And things that uh, even through COVID, we've seen how we can help families through these crises. Um, Can you give us a little bit of a glimpse on the ways that public health has attempted to better educate citizens and try to shatter those barriers? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think the 
original days of doing our not original, but maybe in the middle term, the middle years of public health outreach. There's a lot of support with health fairs, church programs, events that are going on in the communities. And when I joined public health uh, almost seven years ago, uh, there was still a lot of that going on. But being in the pandemic has sure forced us all to realize that there are additional creative ways of communicating. So printed material only reaches mm-hmm. so many people. Right. So our social media presence has really ramped up, et cetera. And then uh, the whole concept of who are trusted messengers. So even though we have wonderful staff who have strong relationships, as an agent of the government, of the city, sometimes you're not the best trusted messenger. So that is why it's so important that we have partnerships with area organizations, Mm -hmm. leaders, agencies who are on the front lines working, right? right? Um, Some of the social media campaigns that I think have been really powerful since I've been at Public Health have been the Take Care Down There campaign. And I, 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 I raise this because I know for our what you might call our elders or seniors, and I consider myself in that group now, sexual health is still very much an interest and still very much an important topic, right? And so the Take their, down, Care Down There campaign uh, talks about STDs, what you need to do. Uh, and I think there's sort of a feeling that when you get to a certain age, you're just not active anymore. And that, it, as we all know, that is not true. Right. Mm -hmm. So the the Take Care Down There campaign was a very powerful – it's still going on today. Mm -hmm. The Water First for Thirst is another powerful campaign, uh, particularly if you've had kids in schools, et cetera. It's so easy to just throw that juice box in their lunchbox or whatever, right? But we know that water is the best and the healthiest choice. So there's been this whole campaign for Water First for Thirst with child care centers, preschools, as well as K through 12 as well. Um, some of the other campaigns that have been really powerful have been um, sort of informal campaigns through the Care Coalition, who I mentioned earlier. They're working with – they have well over 100 partners that they're working with oh. across the city, right? So the the informal campaigns are also important as well as the ones that we see constantly repeated and posted. But the biggest lesson has been – that um, the flyers and the printed things are still places and need for those because we still have significant portions of our community who are not on the Internet. Right. The digital mm-hmm. d- divide is real for many of our community. But the social media presence has been a real game changer. Also, the sort of advocate list. So throughout the pandemic, I've had a list of I think uh, there's close to 80 individuals on that list now who represent different agencies that do outreach to vulnerable groups. And I send them every week emails and updates and notices. Um, And that's the other way that we need to consider our communication and community education as well is is partnering and giving the information to the trusted messengers. Right. Well, and Rebecca and I uh, connect on the Senior Services Roundtable. Mm -hmm. And as you said, there are a lot of seniors that have – no clue to to what the internet is, let alone to be on it. And they need to to be, if they're living at home and dependent on others to keep them informed, then Mm -hmm. they need that information. But the other thing, too, that I think the city's done a great job is to also recognize everything's in a lot of different languages. Mm -hmm. Because there's no assumption, number one, that people can read at all, let alone that English is the is the way they're going to be able to read. So it's there's lots of those those kinds of right. 
things that you've tackled well. Well, it's it's a um, it's a growing story, is what mm-hmm. I would call it. Mm-hmm. This pandemic uh, has really exposed for us uh, the ways in which we we do need to grow in our outreach. Uh, so, as you've mentioned already, I've been really concerned about literacy, mm-hmm. literacy both from a limited English proficient point of view, and literacy also from primary English speakers who don't read right. and write in English. And so it, it cuts across the board. And Columbus has become a very diverse city. We're considered a very welcoming city. So we have large immigrant groups that live here. Uh, and so that has been the other um, growth, is recognizing that some of the traditional clients that uh, public health might have seen from those communities were refugee communities. But there are many more diverse communities from immigrant groups who live in the city who maybe have not reached out to Columbus Public Health because they didn't need our services from an income point of view. But during a pandemic, we need to figure out how to communicate profoundly and well to all communities. Right. The other, I I think that, what are there, over 50 languages in Columbus now? I think I read somewhere. Yeah, that might have been the New Americans report that was generated a couple years ago. And then you talk to some people and they say there's well over 80. So it's always always changing. It's big. It is big. But I can uh, remember when my grandparents came from Italy, there was a large Italian community, Mm. many of whom spoke and read and wrote in English. Um, and and they all made sure their kids got into school and and so that they could also translate because my grandparents didn't speak very much English at all. Mm. But now you could have someone from another country and there may not be out more than a handful of individuals in that language. So that would be really tough it to is. be able to catch up with, with people who are already having m- multiple issues and difficulties being in Columbus anyway. Yes. You know, the three top languages that Columbus Public Health gets asked to either interpret or translate into have for for quite a few years now continued to be the top three, and that is Spanish, Somali, and Nepali. The largest uh, Bhutanese Nepali refugee population outside of those countries resides in central Ohio. Mm -hmm. Not not, not enough people know that, right? But uh, that's just the top three, and then it drops down to many, many other languages as well. right. Right. And I, I have to say that there is a uh, there is an important protocol around interpretation. When I first came to Columbus, I did lots of volunteer work with the Ohio Commission on Minority Health. And back then, there were a lot of children who were being asked to interpret for right. their parents and family members, which is not ethical. Uh, if you can imagine a mom going in for some issues and her child having to interpret for her, it, there's a lot of ethical issues with that. So now there's a whole... Uh, protocol and industry around interpretation, what's appropriate, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and organizations like Columbus Public Health have changed. So we have many contracts now with vendors. And as you mentioned, Carol, not all languages are there easily accessible interpreters right. locally. So that is why we contract with regional vendors and it's done virtually. So you might, uh, what we call, we use the Marty system, but it's basically a form of Skyping in a Mm -hmm. vendor, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the way that we're trying to pair up community needs with technology. Wonderful. Hmm. So can you expand on the barriers and challenges that public health has met over the past year? I mean, what did the department learn regarding 
planned outreach and what worked, what didn't work. I can imagine it was a lot of trial and error very fast. (laughs) What is the term uh, or phrase? Fail fast and and learn quickly (laughs) sort of thing. But Yeah. yeah. Well, what what Columbus Public Health does really well is mobilize around emergencies. And any public health system has a structure called incident command, which is what you go into when a clear threat to the community has been named. So when I arrived at Columbus Public Health back in 2014, it was Ebola, right? Mm. So I uh, I joined the department at a time when there was this rapid mobilization. We went into incident command. Um So rapid mobilization is something that Columbus Public Health does very well. Uh, And it's because there is an existing structure called Incident Command, and it's because our Department of Emergency Preparedness does drills, does things all the time to keep everybody on their toes and ready. Uh, Some of the other things that we have done really well has been creating the drive-through pods. I don't know where you guys got, you know, your vaccinations, if you've been vaccinated already, but we've heard tons of great feedback Mm. because you don't even have to get out of your car, right? It's at the fairgrounds. Brutus Buckeye gave me my shot at the shot. Okay. (laughs) Your Fauci-ouchie. Yeah, Yeah. there you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the the drive-through pods have been uh, – that is definitely a best practice. The mobile clinics that we've been operating as well uh, or uh, partnering with other groups to do testing. So one of the things that I worked with last year was working with uh, CMHA, National Church Residences, Homeport, to bring testing to their low-income senior sites, Mm -hmm. right? So that kind of outreach I would also elevate as a best practice that we did. And we've had to onboard a lot of interim staff. Uh, So these positions were primarily funded through the CARES Act dollars, but um, I think we're well over 100 additional staff to where we started before the pandemic. But these, I don't know, you know, these are uh, funded on temporary funds, et cetera. But the other thing that I just want to say is that I think Columbus Public Health and other health departments have done a remarkable job given that public health has been severely underfunded, not just locally but nationally, for many, many years, which was part of the pride that I have and how quickly we were able to rapidly mobilize because we didn't have all the resources Mm -hmm. necessary to Mm -hmm. do that, right? So we're ramping up to that. But rapid mobilization and all the things that go in that is a big part of it, I would say, that really all of our practice and our commitment stood us well complications is what I would call the second half of this. Uh, there's a the guidance changes sometimes on a daily basis. Yeah. And as you might imagine, when you're charged with communicating out to the community, that could be difficult to stay on top of. As soon as you release something, it could have changed, right? Uh, so we're hoping that that is going to slowly go to another level. But that has definitely been part of the experience over the last year, how quickly guidance continues to change. And then the other complication is how can we stay in good, strong, relevant communication with all of our various communities, some of which we talked about already, our seniors, our limited English proficient, our low literacy, and those who are affected by the digital divide. Those are all important uh, complications that we've had to consider. And the other piece is if you've been listening to the governor's um, a press conferences, et cetera, you know that he rolled out a phased approach of the vaccine in our state. 
And that was necessary because the vaccine was in very short supply in the beginning. Uh, and uh, like like any like any model, any process, there's lots of criticisms and what ifs, could is. But I think it was important to roll it out in a phased rollout because there was minimal vaccines available in the beginning. So prioritizations did have to be set, right? And now we're in a stage where everybody's 16 and above. So if you see how rapidly over just the past few months we've advanced through these phases, but early limited vaccine supplies were another complication that I would raise as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, the it had to be incredibly frustrating for all of you because it was frustrating for everybody listening to the governor, listening to the mayor, um, because it was so confusing at the beginning. And people think healthcare is a straight line, and it's not. You know, things do change. And um, if you're predicting something, that's what it is. It's a prediction. It's not a fact. Because you predict a thousand people are going to die doesn't mean that a thousand people will die. Doesn't mean that a two thousand won't die. But it was just people were confused and therefore then frustrated. Um, So you're having to make strategic decisions out of all that confusion. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the sort of the process that you went through. How did you get to where you were trying to make sure people got the right information, that the the department was moving in the right direction? Um, these, these strategies are critical. Where do we think we're going with these strategies in the future? Yeah. Well, I think for m- m- many of the, the, the boots-on-the-ground clinical outreach strategies, there are better people than me to talk about that. So I will just say that. But early on, a number of colleagues and agency leads reached out to me, and these were primarily agencies who served our immigrant communities, saying that they were hearing people didn't understand what was going on. They didn't feel like they were in the loop. So I started convening a weekly call with with groups, and they could invite people to join on. And that was tremendously powerful and helpful just to get people to know what I know, you know. And uh, and then I heard their feedback on how we needed to do a better job with translating, with reaching out, et cetera. So I was able to elevate those concerns. But as the pandemic, that was early on last March. But uh, by June, it was clear that everybody was getting stretched too thin Mm -hmm. because by then everybody was being asked to serve on different committees, on different, you know, meetings going forward. And that's when we went to a online distribution of information. Mm -hmm. But I would just uh, elevate that as something that was very profoundly a profound achievement for me last year was hearing the concerns from the community and acting on it. Right. And that's what anybody in any government or advocacy system, that is the expectation, and I'm not alone right. in that. There right. are many, there are many partners and colleagues from around the city who did similar work. Right, right? but that's but a, that was key. It's a starting point, and yeah. then I was invited to join the senior services roundtable, mm-hmm. and that Fran be- Ryan is your biggest uh, fan club member. Oh, I think she is, and Dave Paul <laughs> yes, too. Yes, yes. But um, that, and I had heard about the roundtable, of course, as as an employee of the city of Columbus, but I had never logged in on the week when the, their weekly meetings. And uh, as you know, Carol, there were so many questions from the community, so many things that when you're in the weeds, you think people know this. We've sent this out, mm-hmm. but not everybody knows it. Yeah, right. Or you need to hear the information multiple times before it sinks in. 
And then I started uh, including the Senior Services Roundtable group in the weekly updates that I sent out. And then everybody had my phone number. Yes. <laughs> so the other thing that I heard was uh, people calling me um, just to talk about their fears and concerns about getting the vaccine. Because mm-hmm. they had m- that my number was put out there in a public way. And I shared that on up with our social work team. You know, I said, uh, this is uh, this is a huge huge piece for us. We can't just have flat, outward-facing communication. There's got to be engagement, Mm -hmm. uh, discussion, support in those ways. And uh, one thing I quickly learned is when people have your work cell number, there's no concept of work time or workspace. Yes. So for a couple months there, every evening, there'd be calls from somebody saying, I'm sorry to call you so late, but I just want to talk through your thoughts. Can you help me understand some question or piece? around vaccine and Mm -hmm. and started with testing, but now it's all about vaccine. So as much as systems are really good at sending out information, we can never forget the power of being in direct relationship with our residents. Right. Yeah. And it's what's interesting about this pandemic and, and history will have discussion, you know, our future will have discussions in this in a historic context, this pandemic was different because technology was different. Mm-hmm. Not just the fast rollout of a vaccine, but the fast um, and vast amount of information that went out at all levels of government and international. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't just looking at what was going on in the U.S., but watching the U.K. because they're about three weeks ahead of us, those kinds of things. I mean, I think it this 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 pandemic is really different. Yeah. It's huge, but it's really different than what has happened in the past. I agree totally. And the other piece is so many of our residents get their information from overseas news outlets. Mm-hmm. So as much as people think we're promoting, we're sending the things that are relevant for us here, there are certain generations who are still getting all of their information from overseas outlets, some of which might be accurate and relevant for our work here, some of which is not. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, can you think of ways that we essential Ohioans can better work with public health? I mean, after all, we want the next health crisis, which there will be one <laughs> to be more manageable. <laughs> I mean, I don't have yeah. a crystal ball, but you, you mean it's going to happen. We're humans. We are uh, fallible to disease and virus. Uh, what can we do to educate ourselves, our family members, and neighbors to uh, we can empower ourselves to be better? Yes. Well, the first thing that I would recommend is um, educating yourself, as has been raised before. And I didn't go through the laundry list of all the services that we offer at Columbus Public Health, but I'd like to take a minute right now to name some of them. Absolutely. Uh, because it's not just educating yourself about the pandemic. It's educating yourself about all the realms of health in your life. So as I've mentioned, we have a population health area, which includes infectious disease investigation and emergency preparedness. And there's still need for their information for tornado preparation, flood preparation. Mm -hmm. It's not just pandemic preparation, right? Environmental health is one of our largest areas. And as much as people don't necessarily connect that to public health, it's a very visible part of the work that we do. Food protection and inspections, water and land protection, vector and rat control. I live in Clintonville. Need I say more? Yes. 
uh, body art, and smoke-free compliance. That's all within environmental health. Addiction services, I've heard time and time again, the COVID-19 is one pandemic. Another one that we're living through right now is addiction, right? Mm-hmm. So addiction services, which is our alcohol and drug services programs, and also our leadership for leading the Columbus and Franklin County Addiction Plan is another big thing. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the Center for Public Health Innovation, which includes health equity and chronic disease prevention, and particularly for her, our seniors who might be listening, uh, there are amazing programs done through that group, including the walking programs. Mm-hmm. Many of you may have heard about uh, the walking programs. We partner with area hospitals, with the local YMCAs to do them in area parks. Uh, but the ones that I've attended um, have been the, my favorite ones have been the ones where they're clearly the largest crowd were seniors mm-hmm. who were there so, interacting with each other, talking. It was a highlight of the a, week. As opposed to walking in the mall. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. outside. Outside walking. in yes. a park. Exactly. <laughs> but a mall works too. Absolutely. I'm all for walking oh, wherever. And, it goes. and, and, and yeah. it's amazing too that how that has caught on. Yes. Yes. Um, and then family health, our women, infants and children program. And I know a lot of grandparents are taking care of grandkids. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Women, Infants, and Children program is accessible to anybody who's got young kids in their life, our dental program and our home visiting program. And then the things that people tend to think about public health, our clinical health, which is our women's health, our laboratories, our TB program, which we thought was eradicated but has not. No, right. Uh, and our vaccines, where there's a lot of discussion around vaccines these days. And then our sexually transmitted disease prevention areas as well. But, um, you know, being um, informed is the first part. And then if you go to Columbus Public Health's webpage, there's a, if you are on email, you can send any email to this generic email address and it'll be routed to the right person to respond. So just this last week, I got two questions from communities. It didn't come to me directly. It's okay if you don't know the person. Just send it to the Columbus Public Health email address, and it'll be routed to somebody who will be in touch with you and answer your question and bring you resources. Uh, And the other thing that I would just say is to look out for each other, right? Um, What we've learned through the pandemic is so many people could not understand or didn't have the bandwidth to stay on the line to get registered, and it was a neighbor or somebody from a local agency that had worked with you, you know, or a child helped you get registered. So we need to look out for each other. And I've heard wonderful stories about neighbors driving other neighbors who don't have transportation to vaccine sites as well, or delivering food, right? So um, the city of Columbus has uh, some a lot of severe food insecurities, but we also have a lot of great agencies and programs out there to mm-hmm. deliver food. So uh, there, you know, I know that in in my neighborhood there are some seniors who are basically shut in; they're not leaving their house for anything right, right. now, right? right? And so some people have organized uh, delivery. So I think I'm like every other week with this one woman who lives by herself. And I go and pick up the box and I deliver it to her door, ring her doorbell and leave, you know. But those are the things that we could all be doing for each other. Uh, And then beware misinformation. There's been so much misinformation put out there, uh, you know, about the vaccine's efficacy, about side effects that it'll do to you. That's a whole nother podcast probably, right? 
But beware misinformation. Make sure that you're getting your information from vetted uh, scientific-based sites. And that would include the CDC site, the High Department of Health site, or your local Columbus Public Health site. And I'll just um, name that it's www.columbus.gov backslash coronavirus. But if you just Google Columbus coronavirus, it'll take you to that right, site too. Right. So that's the, the other thing that I would just say is make sure you're, you're following and listening to the best vetted scientific sites as well. And then be involved in your area commissions and civic groups. Uh, so the, the one, the, the one thing that we've heard is the stories of loneliness, of being distant from everybody. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and so be involved. And not everybody has a faith community. I understand that. But be involved with some group that can check in on you and help you with some things. And one group that I would uplift, of course, is the Senior Services Roundtable, an excellent group to be a part of locally as well. They are wonderful. You know, it, it, what's interesting about the, the idea of educating yourself it's if people could keep in mind, it's much better to educate yourself before the disaster than wait till after the disaster. Something as easy as water. Now we turn on our tap and we think it's fine and mm-hmm. dandy. But just think if you were living in Flint, Michigan, where some neighborhoods will maybe never have water again in their homes because they can't afford to change all the pipes or in Texas where who thought there would be a storm that would knock out their water supply. Mm -hmm. Um, And so realize that we have these incredible resources, so use them. (laughs) Absolutely. So, Rebecca, we've talked about the programs that that your work that are active at public health right now. Anything new that you're thinking that's out there that you could tell us about? Well, something that I think will be a a game changer going forward, there's always new things. I'm just going to elevate one that's on the horizon for us, is uh, we've got a mobile van. Oh, very. And uh, that will be a game changer, bringing services to neighborhoods and communities that that don't have good transportation access, et Mm -hmm. cetera. Or what we've learned through this pandemic is homebound, medically fragile people, right? Uh, that has been um, one of the real upticks of questions and concerns I get from fellow members of the Senior Services Roundtable these days. Um, so a mobile clinic is going to be so powerful in so many ways, and I understand it's going to be set up to do all kinds of things, uh, but we're really looking forward to that rolling out because, uh, as our current mayor is so fond of saying, everything is local, everything is neighborhood-based, mm-hmm. Right. So you can have a great service, but if people have difficulties accessing it, traveling right. to it, et cetera, what good is the service? It's right. good for some people, but not everybody. Right. And transportation so, is such a, an it's huge a barrier. issue It's here. a barrier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just elevate around those issues that Columbus Public Health has been really involved in uplifting the discussions around social determinants of health. And what that means is so much of our health does not come from our clinical appointments, our clinical interventions. I think I've heard that 20% of, of, of care comes from clinical. 80% comes from the rest of life. So the neighborhood in which you live in, the schools that you have access to, the food, the healthy food or unhealthy food, 80% of your health 
comes from other things, not from clinical interventions. Now, clinical interventions are very important, right? But it really lets us think, and when I think about the expansive role of public health from its early days in Columbus, being focused around cholera, for mm-hmm. example, but now the vast scope of everything that Columbus Public Health has a finger in the pie, in, right? Right. It goes to that social determinants of health. There are so many things that affect your life expectancy and your health as an individual and as a community. So let's talk about an example. I'm thinking um, the school lunch program Mm -hmm. so that a child is getting good food because they're getting it at school. Is that is that the kind of exam? Am I on the right track here? Well, that's a complicated answer. And I do have some great people to recommend to you for a future podcast. (laughs) But the what I what I would say is the zip code in which you live mm-hmm. is a clear indicator of how long you're going to live. Right. The zip code in which you live. Right. So that that is a classic example that's mm-hmm. often raised around a social determinant of health because you might live in a neighborhood that's been redlined by mm-hmm. past policies, mm-hmm. so you don't have uh, good systems, you don't have good businesses there. Um, and you don't have a grocery store. Yeah, you don't have a grocery store. You could be in a food desert. There might not be good outlets for your children to play and get fresh air and run around outside. So that is the example that I would raise is the zip code in which you live is a huge precursor. And I think uh, there's been studies with the current Institute on Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State. They've done lots of of these types of studies in partnership with city and other partners that show depending on where you live in central Ohio, there can be almost a 20-year age difference. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, uh, 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 life expectancy, right. not age. Right. Life expectancy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there so, was a study, and I, yeah. I was just sitting here trying to remember. We'll ha- we will find that out and include it in our show notes okay. <laughs> for people to to, yeah. to read. But it, it but it was in the newspaper. Yeah. Um, but, yes, in Columbus, which is un- unbelievable – that they're literally between one zip code and one a zip code right next to them, there could be a difference of that many years, two decades. Yeah, and I would uplift the name of Dr. Kiera Barnett. She's a researcher with the Curran Institute, and she's been doing a lot of presentations on social determinants of health. Any other wisdom thoughts that we haven't really covered that uh, you'd want to at least let our audience know about? I don't know if it would be wisdom. Maybe it's kitchen table wisdom. (laughs) It works. But I would say take care of yourself, your loved ones, and your neighbors. And that means consuming all the things that help you to be good physically, but also all the things that can help you mentally as well. The mental health has been another consequence of this pandemic, right? So recognizing that mental health is just as important as physical health And uh, part of that is being connected with people, which has been very difficult throughout this. And I mentioned the loneliness factor Mm -hmm. earlier. And if you don't know where to turn to our local Adam board, you can go and look at their site. They've got lots of referrals. Our federally qualified health centers, a number of them have programs. Uh, NAMI and Mental Health America also have presence locally as well. But I think sometimes we don't talk enough about the mental health toll uh, along with the physical body toll. My aunt is in a um, um, assisted living facility, so they've been locked down. And, and the famous words of those residents are, they're in prison. Mm. And I keep saying, no, you're in a cocoon. 
you know, you're going to come out this beautiful butterfly at the end of this pandemic. She kind of gives me the eye roll like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's prison, you know, <laughs> but but it is. Yeah. It's uh, it, it, not only it's it's hard for them who have been in those facilities, but hard for us because we can't get to those individuals. Mm-hmm. So thank goodness our, that world is opening up a little bit right now. So, yes. And on that note, I'll just say my dad is 89 years old. He lives in assisted living in California. And it's been so hard, so hard. And he's at an age where he's not able to really manage Zoom calls anymore. And not being able to see faces has been devastating for him, right? Right. So I I totally understand that. And I think that these are all the ways that we can take care of ourselves, our loved ones, and our neighbors. And we all need to be in relationship with each other. Right. So take take care of ourselves, be in relationships do your do your homework. Get the, get that information. Find out those resources yeah. and ask questions. Yes, just yep. ask questions. Yes. Yeah. Phenomenal, Rebecca. Thank you yes, so much. Thank this you. is wonderful. We we wanted to have a positive look at Columbus Public Health. You're not just the COVID police. Um, you are there to help us have better lives, and we exactly. appreciate your time here today. Thank you so much for having me, Carol and yeah. Brett. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Looking Forward Our Way. We'd like to ask a favor from you. Would you give us some feedback on our podcast? We've made it really easy to do so. Click on the link in our episode show notes. That link will take you to our podcast Google My Business page. Now, you may have to sign into your Google account. From there, we'd appreciate your feedback on the podcast overall, feedback on a specific episode, or a suggestion on what you would like to see us cover in a future episode. All your feedback is really appreciated. Your comments only help us create episodes that will keep us all looking forward our way. 